Hey guys, what's up? It's week 280, and I'm letting the winner of the Slimy Little Bastards Blu-ray know I'm going to get out ASAP, probably after the weekend. So, you know, I, I, I record these Fridays, so you'll probably get it shipped, uh, you know, Saturday or Monday or somewhere around that time. Um, let's hop into these reviews, and the first one up is Cinematographer, and this is from Lightyear. And this is a documentary, and usually I don't cover too many documentaries, but I figured this one was kind of interesting enough to take a dive at it. Cinematography is always interesting, and usually... Usually, a lot of the times, this is, you know, obviously about film, cinematography, that kind of stuff, but they uh, they always focus on the, the directors or the actors or the producers or, or some of the special effects artists, and they do they do have a, a, you know, a fascination with cinematographers, but I think a documentary, I'm sure there has been a few of them out there, but uh, never too many documentaries about film. I always like watching these, or in general, documentaries usually, even if it's not a great documentary, I always feel like I'm learning something, so I never feel too bad about watching them. I, I thought this one was pretty enjoyable. So it basically follows about three or four cinematographers, but it mostly follows, um, I want to make sure I get his name right, Donald M. Morgan, who who, read, who led a really interesting life. He kind of started off as, you know, an addict, and that's a big part of the story too. Um, and he's like just this down-to-earth kind of, you know, I would say grizzled to a certain point, but very professional and very good-natured, you know, maybe a little rough exterior at first glance, but... Right when you get past the surface, he's very friendly almost immediately. So, you know, maybe it's just deceiving looks or whatever. But so so it kind of goes over his entire career, starting off when he's really young and, and talking about getting his first gig, being late because he got drunk, all this kind of interesting stuff like that. And, you know, they always have to have kind of an arc to these characters or these people in the documentaries. And, and the main arc is definitely his, his battle overcoming alcoholism and things like that and a rough childhood. And uh, he's got a lot of good stories. All the way to the very top. Um, he, he did some cinematography for a few John Carpenter films, including Starman and Christine, and did excellent work in Christine. I don't think anyone would argue that. You know, he uh, Carpenter originally always worked with Dean Cundy, and then he worked with um, Donald, and then he went back to Dean Cundy, and that there's a whole story involved with that. There's also like two or three other major cinematographers in this. One who was Clint Eastwood's cinematography for a cinematographer for 39 films. So there's lots of clips that pop in of all these different famous movies like Starman and Christine but also Unforgiven. And they talk about, you know, their different styles and approaches to cinematography. You know, not over lighting, you know, just shading certain parts of the face. Well, you have him in focus for 90% of the movie, or you have him in, in light 90% of the movie, you see his full face. Well, why not part of his face here? And just all these kind of interesting takes. It also gets into the whole, you know, like uh, politics a little bit behind the whole thing and everything like that. And and mostly people just talk about Donald. You know, they they talk about how he, how they helped him, and he seems almost like a family member to these guys. They've known him for years, and there, there's some touching moments. All in all, it's an interesting documentary. Um, and there's nice little side stories involving huge names like David Fitcher, John Carpenter, Clint Eastwood, so all that kind of stuff. Um, says um, they worked on all together. These people worked on so many movies, including like uh, The French Connection, The Graduate, Unforgiven, like I said. So like a lot of these guys have worked with the top, um, the top of them, and they they won tons of awards. So to see them talk and mention their careers and all this kind of stuff and little small stories and their life stories was nice. On top of that, they're getting up up in age. So you know, like at one point, there's a wall of cinematographers, and he mentions all the, almost all these guys are dead. That's why I don't ever want to get put on this wall. And you can kind of relate to that, you know. I mean, just seeing that, seeing your own, you know 
mortality right in front of your face. But uh, yeah, it, it's a very enjoyable, very well made. I did enjoy it. Um, it, it. It's not like the best thing ever made, right? It's not like the cinematography in the movie about cinematography. It's not doing all these crazy things like, oh, we're going to come with a crane shot. You know, it's very straightforward talking heads with clips in the movies and some other things, some stylish flares, nothing, uh, you know, amazing, but you're, you got some good information you're learning and it's enjoyable. Okay, the next one up here is from Unearth Films, and this is Evil Dead Trap 2 Haiki. Um, I hope I said that name right, Haiki. Yeah, I've actually watched this one before. This is not the same director as the first one. Unearth Films put out the first one as well, I think, last year. And uh, honestly, that's an excellent movie. Evil Dead Trap is a crazy, wild movie. That director did a slew of cool films. This is actually directed by the writer of Akira. He had a couple other films directed, but I think Akira is probably his big, you know, call to fame. Akira is a, a classic um, anime movie. So Evil Dead Trap 2. This doesn't really pick up anywhere where the first one left off. There is kind of the presence of an evil small child, but it, it's handled in a completely different way. So if you've never seen Evil Dead Trap, or you're not too familiar with, you know, wild Japanese film, then this might be a really bad kind of approach unless you're really um, a really kind of, you know, adventurous film fan. But for somebody that's seen a lot of strange films and different films, I love Evil Dead Trap 2. This is like the third or fourth time watching this thing. And I think it gets better every time you watch it. Um, for the Gorehounds, there's some gnarly gore effects, you know, some stuff that is like through the eyes of a camera lens, which adds a flair to it, which the Evil Dead Trap original had as well. But this kind of stuff adds this kind of layer of just, um, I guess, voyeurism, which makes it very uncomfortable. And one of the characters kind of, you know, um, loves that. They, they kind of embrace that voyeurism and stuff like that. So anyways, the plot is very strange. It follows this heavyset female projectionist who's kind of lonely and... Uh, she seems very kind of like a, um, isolated and just bizarre and different, not not like the other people around her. One of her friends is a very beautiful um, former pop idol who's now turned journalist, uh, newscaster woman on, on the on the grounds reporter. And she's very much of a, nar- a narcissist in this stuff. Well, she's having a relationship with this, uh, this, this strange gentleman who's in about 100 Japanese movies. I believe he actually appears in the Evil Dead Trap 3, which is directed by the director of Evil Dead Trap 1, but not related as well. More of a Japanese giallo, if you will. So... He is dating the journalist, so he therefore meets her friend in this heavyset girl, and all three of them start to have some sort of love triangle. Now, that seems kind of complicated and strange on top of that, but in the background, there appears to be some sort of, you know, strange young boy, almost like ghostly in in Haiki. And I believe that's the name of the character from the first film, so it's carrying over that as well. So this character is kind of a haunting presence throughout, and originally the heavyset girl sees her, and as it goes on, it seems that this character is involved with everybody's life to a certain extent. Sometimes imaginary, sometimes real, but it seems that if by the end of it, he is very real. Or maybe not. So what happens is it gets really complicated and weird, and even more so. And this heavyset girl goes out at night, and you don't know if it's her own doing, or there's a little bit of that, you know, that entity pulling at her to commit these acts of murder. And we get more on that as it goes on, more in-depth stuff, and there's like psychics and all this kind of stuff. So it gets even more weird and uh, interesting. But this movie is so filled with rain and water, and the atmosphere and the murders on the street are really grueling. And a lot of times they don't show them up close; they show the aftermath. But the way they are shot, they are so artistically beautiful. They'll 
they show one where it goes out to a wide, a very, very wide of the city, and we can see the overhead bridge in the left and the top of the frame, and at the bottom right of the frame, we see our, um, you know, I guess protagonist in this committing a violent murder, and it's so wide, it's so beautiful, and it just sets the atmosphere and sets the location very well. You know, this is a movie that I think is aesthetically a 5 out of 5. Now, as terms of plot and subject matter, that's up to the, you know, the other viewers. I like this kind of stuff. It is a movie that is not exactly the easiest to describe on paper. The idea that possibly an entity that was meant to be born, that wants to be born, is the spirits of all these possibly aborted children, and they're kind of controlling someone to carry out their acts of violence to kill women who possibly have had an abortion, or go after their ovaries, because that's the idea of it, maybe to be born. It's such a bizarre film. It could be mis, uh, you know, it could be looked at in multiple ways. Maybe, uh, you know, people in America just aren't seeing some of the things. I'm certainly sure that's it. But it's interesting, and you can, you know, cut it up and analyze it and look into it. And the idea that the they cast this heavyset girl as the lead actress is also refreshing because she's unique, she's different, she's a good performance, and they pit her against her narcissistic fr- narcissistic friend. I love, and, and they're they're back and forth is great. Did I mention that the gore is also outstanding? Like I said, uh, somebody cuts off their own arm, which is grueling. It's rough stuff. Um, and, and like, it's just a really good film. Like, and, and I know people are like, well, is this an anti-abortion film or, or whatever? And when you look at films and you're looking at, you know, subject matters that could be taboo or bothersome or just really unpleasant, that's kind of something that a lot of horror films do do. And sometimes people forget that they are watching something that is supposed to horrify you and repulse you. Doesn't mean it's for everybody. Doesn't mean that, you know, that person who doesn't like this or who doesn't want to watch this should be shamed or anything. But it it is a fact of, you know, film and and extreme horror and all these kind of different things that people, you know, either just have to turn a blind eye to and say, I don't want nothing to do with that. Or if they like it, explore it and be interested in it. I think that this is one to explore. I think it's a really unique movie. I think it's almost as good as the original in a completely different way different way for completely different reasons. Um, while the original wears all its horror influences on its sleeves from Cronenberg, from Sam Raimi to Lucio Fulci to all these different people and whatnot, and rem- everybody's in that movie, right? Um, and, and like, so this one, it does, and it, it just, it feels wholly original which I love. So it's really a great movie. It looks fantastic. I mean, this movie's made for Blu-ray. It sounds really good, too, the surround sound. I know it's a stereo mix, but, you know, the way my system's set up, everything came through really well. And you have, like, a lot of good, you know, creaks and sounds, especially at the end in, in this, like, kind of factory showdown with the dripping water and all that stuff. There are no special features. You can listen to it in mono or stereo. There's a gallery and some trailers. That is the only downside to this because I would have loved somebody like Cat Ellinger or, you know, somebody to get on here and just analyze the shit out of this movie. I think that this movie is made for that, and I'm not smart enough to tackle it. Also, maybe I'm not the guy to do that, right? To talk about like a bunch of abortions and shit like that. Maybe that's not my place. But um, this is what I see from the movie, and I think it's wholly interesting. And there's other different reads on it and stuff like that. And I don't think any of them are wrong. I think they're all very cool to look into. This is Evil Dead Trap 2, Haiki. I do enjoy the third one of the series. It's the least of the three. It's more of a Jolly. Unfortunately, there's no really good quality versions of it, so like that holds it back because all three movies are shot well. It's just that two of them have gorgeous Blu-rays now, stateside from On Earth Films, from the On Earth Classics line, and the third one doesn't. The third one has like a laser disc if you're lucky, or a VCD. So, anyways, check this out. I was very happy with it. And I think it's pretty freaking great. Um, violent, weird, bizarre, it's just everything you'd want if you're a weirdo like me. 
Okay, the next one up is A Fugitive from the Past from Arrow Films. And this was made in 1965. And this is from a, a pretty prolific director, Bloody Spirit Mount Fuji, which I have covered on the channel. I remember liking. Um, it's been a while, though. I will apologize for that. But um, A Fugitive from the Past. Now, this is pretty uh, well regarded in terms of Japanese films. I think it was listed as like the third best when they took this poll, according to like the introduction by the, the film expert. And when I put this in, I saw the runtime at three hours and like 10 minutes. Or, or three hours and two minutes or something along that lines. And I thought, geez, this is a, a fairly long film, but it's black and white, it's gorgeous. It, it caught me in right away. So during this tsunami, right after, shortly after World War II, so the country's kind of in shambles, there's a lot of chaos going on here. D after this uh, tsunami hits, there is these uh, these kind of three kind of shady fellows that are running away and they get on this train and it's, it's just pure chaos. What happens is uh, later on, the police are taking bodies out of the water, and they, they there's there's some people missing. You know, there's extra bodies, and they're kind of confused by the situation. They don't really know what how this happened. Why is there extra bodies? And at the same time, there's been two kind of there's uh, somebody's house was burned down in the chaos, and a bunch of things were stolen. So they look to think it's these two kind of ex cons that, you know, were in the area or something like that, that were working in the area. So they start to do look, look into everything like that, and it leads them to realize there was a third person with them. And that third person ends up becoming the main subject of the film, the person that, you know, these police officers are looking for. This third person shows up to a brothel, and he has, uh, well, he first meets this woman on, like, a train. She gives him a rice cake, shows this great kindness to him. He's a big, big man. He's quiet. He seems well-reserved and all those things. So he spends the night at her brothel, and he offers her a ridiculous amount of money. She can't say no. He he gives a lot with his generosity. This completely changes this woman's life, and we kind of fast-forward five years later. At that time, she is you know interviewed by the police officers, and she gives them a false end because she realizes this guy might be in trouble, all this kind of thing. So this movie, it, it's such a, such a strange thing because in the very beginning of the movie, we realize that about fairly quick, we realize that those two people, they found those extra bodies were the prisoners, and this third guy possibly killed them, but we don't ever see it. We never see it, and there's going to be spoilers here, so we don't ever actually witness those murders. And uh, as it goes on um, throughout the film, and this character who had such a sweet nature to him, although a dangerous edge, is confronted with something you know from the past, and uh, it, it turns out really dark and really messed up, and as an audience member, because they didn't show you that initial moment of violence that he was possibly capable of, you are kind of shocked by the situation. You don't really expect it, and you, you, you're, it, it just takes you back. And that's just a choice of what to show and what not to show that was just really brilliant, honestly. And then as it goes on and on, we get more reveals, and eventually we hear the story. Um, it, it's, it's a great film that, that goes over, you know, these two characters in this prostitute who made a name with for herself and worshipped this man her entire life, and this, this fugitive, who seemed, in, in a way, very much like um, Valjean from The Miserables, you know, uh, Lemez, if you will. He seemed very much in that vein, and the, the plot of the movie is kind of in that. But, well, let's just say, like, what if Valjean was a little darker? What if 
that priest never showed him the kindness in the beginning. And you might have this kind of character, a fugitive from the past. Um, great film. Great film. Um, had me intrigued the entire time with a three-hour and 20-minute runtime or whatever it is. And there's a decent amount of features on here, I believe. Introduction by writer and uh, curator Jason Sharp. Scene-specific commentaries from leading Japanese film scholars Aaron Giroux, Irene Gonzalez-Lopez, Eric Kamenik, Earl Jackson, uh, Dasuki Miyayo, and Alexander uh, Zoltan. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. We also have a Tomi Uchiello filmography. This is a great film. I would recommend it. Three hours and three minutes. Um... Pick it up from Arrow. They, they really put out a lot of these like classic Japanese films that are broadening my horizons and hopefully other film fans as well. So, loved it. Okay, so now we're going to do the Patreon pick. And this is again from my boy Derek B. And he picked a classic from 2006. This is James Gunn's Slither. It's kind of a new classic, I guess I'd say. It's, it's, it's what, 16 years old or something like that. Stars Michael Rooker, Nathan Fillion. Uh, who's the actress in here? She's really great, Sue. Elizabeth Banks. And don't want to forget about good old Greg Henry from Just Before Dawn and a couple Brian De Palma joints. So Slither. I remember when this flick came out, there was a big buzz. I was pretty excited because it had James Gunn was directing it. You know, James Gunn wrote Tromeo and Juliet. He wrote the Dawn of the Dead remake. I think he wrote Scooby do uh you know the live action version but i was quite a fan of you know trauma and i was excited that a guy from trauma was going to get some big bucks to direct uh alien from outer space horror comedy and i was like this is right up my alley not to mention it starred michael fucking rooker henry himself also great in cliffhanger when i was a kid loved michael rooker so i still love him uh yeah so i was like all right this is very cool and i know a lot of the sci-fi fans were excited because nathan fillion was in like firefly and stuff so this one opens up and it definitely has the dna of, you know, the blob, very 50 style thing comes from space, messes up this small town, but it also has, you know, that James Gunn mentality, which he'd carry on in Guardians 1 and 2 and The Suicide Squad and all his other films. And he has that comedy element about him, that dark edge too. Super, which I think is his best film, honestly. I love Super. So, Anyways, not to mention it has obviously the 80s influence too of those remakes from the 50s, like the blob remake. Of course, Night of the Creeps, which he says he never saw, but hey, Deadly Spawn, all this kind of stuff that's just in there. What I thought was really genuinely great about it this time around, I always liked this movie, so, is that the small town feel is truly captured. We are introduced to all these different characters, even if they're for brief moments in the background of a second, you know, we have the preacher who's smoking. You remember that guy later when he becomes, you know, invaded by space slugs and wanders, you know, uh, trying to get uh, Grant's girlfriend or wife back. So, like, you remember all these little side characters. The sheriff in here, there's so many funny lines and just genuinely great dialogue. The mayor, I think, I think Greg Henry kind of steals the show when he's on screen. Um, the Mr. Pib freakout in here is legendary. If nobody's seen it, I won't spoil it for you, but everybody has their breaking point, and Mr. Pib is for Greg Henry. So there, there's just a lot of great lines in here. Stuff that I quoted years after I watched it, bitch is hardcore. Um, and it has that small backwoods kind of mentality, uh, you know, these people all being picked apart. It also has got the great concept of the hive mentality monster, which I love from space, you know, that that unknown entity that just crash lands in your your hometown and everybody's either, you know, going to get eviscerated, e- evaporated, whatever the hell you want to call it, uh, eliminated or eaten. You know, so so it has that element too, and like the Deadly Spawn's one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, so like it has that. So so what happens is you know it's up to the sheriff and a couple other brave souls to try to stop this hell invasion. Michael Rooker plays Grant, and he is great because he's the one who initially gets attacked by the alien, becomes like the partial with the alien that's going to create this giant hive. 
that are, are spread by slugs and all sorts of gross things. So, so the idea is like it spreads and spreads and spreads and he becomes more grotesque and mutated and he's got a great makeup job. The big holdup on Slither and everybody knows it is that the CGI wasn't particularly great when it came out in 2006 and it hasn't aged that well either. But my rule is, you know, if you're if you if you're kind of iffy on a movie and you're watching it and CGI, people are like ah fuck it, you know, that's kind of just the the main complaint because they already had something wrong with the movie, but that's the easiest thing to point out. When I'm watching Slither, I don't really notice the CGI being that bad, although I know it's not great. I really don't care. I just enjoy the ride so much, the comedy, the the gore gags, the practical stuff when it's there is excellent. Um, there's a nice little shout out to Nightmare on Elm Street and Deadly Blessing, some Wes Craven love in there. Like it has a lot of these elements that you really enjoy in horror films and you know this is this is one of my newer favorites if i had to make a top 10 from 2006 i don't you know this isn't a top three hands down like i i quite enjoy this movie i'm super glad i got to rewatch you know the screen factory um blu-ray um anyways it's just got lots of laughs and lots of jokes and lots of good one-liners and there is a slew of features including audio new audio commentary with james gunn and cast members new interview with james gunn and actor greg henry audio commentary james gunn and nathan fillion deleted scenes extended scenes bringing slither's creatures to life slitherly set tour with nathan fillion the making of sick minds and slimy days of slither gag reel and more so if you've not seen slither i highly recommend picking it up before this there was only on hd dvd which i did own couldn't watch it because no one had an hd dvd fucking player because they were pretty obsolete pretty damn quick. Anyways, Slither, great stuff. Highly recommended. Please watch it if you haven't seen it. Um, it's just a lot of fun. All right, let's hop into those 1980 movies. They did this to you! They're trying to turn us against each other! Just look at them. What do they know about friendship anyway? I'll get them. You watch I'll take care of those sons of bitches. Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good Lord. It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. It must have something to do with some obscure sexual writer. With the almost profound... Getting very careless, blood in your hair. What will we do? You want to look pretty, don't you? Pretty for me. I can't believe you're not afraid. All you have to do is piss on it. Could he care blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. Never come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. Evil. Got my leg. Got my leg. I'm here. You're here. There's a bug bank out there. Messenger of God. You do if you stay here. Demanding everything, including blood. John, I want this material burned. All of it. Crazy one. 
remember. In the lake, the, the one who attacked me, the one who pulled me underneath the water. Then he's still there. Used servitude. I think you will all meet again. <laughs> In hell! I'd have mercy on his soul. He was one ruthless son of a bitch. Wendy. Stay away! Darling, light of my life. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. I'm gonna bash him right the fuck in. <laughs> well, Dad, are you proud of me now? Do I measure up? Huh? My son, my son was a son of a bitch, and he was no good. That's it, my son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. Oh, see me. Oh, see me. You're gonna die. He didn't find any boy. You know as well as I do, it takes all kinds of critters to make farmer Vincent fritters. I wonder who the real cannibals are. Okay, the first one up from 1980 is going to be the Don Doler classic, question mark, Fiend. That's right, for Massacre Video. Now, I've already covered Fiend, so I won't go that in depth here. So, if you guys don't know Don Dollar, he is a regional filmmaker from Baltimore. You know, the next guy after John Waters when you think that territory. He has, you know, like four or five fairly uh, recognizable uh, horror sci-fi movies in, you know, Night Beast, which is a blast, Blood Massacre, which is very fun, and Alien Factor, which is a really cool, you know, creatures land and they're from a zoo from space and they get lost and they kill everybody and then he also has galaxy invader and of course fiend fiend is kind of the outliner here right because the other like four are definitely space creatures of some extent maybe blood massacre could be argued what the hell it is but a fiend kind of is as well possibly from space but you really don't know so in the very beginning we have this you know uh ghost lobster kind of floating down and entering you know uh, a coffin you know this the most beautiful regional cemetery ever and it's shot on like gritty film so it looks great entering this this body and the body rises immediately and just attacks the nearest person the body doesn't look too good it looks rotted you know old and decrepit and after it you know attacks a couple people we see these kind of weird effects of course classic 1980 effects maybe even dated for the time i don't know they still use those drains the life force of these people and moves on so we kind of open, follow our two kind of more main characters after this, a new husband, a husband and wife, and this new character, Longfellow, moves in next door. He's a music teacher. He's very bizarre. He's very proper. He's very fancy, and he's very fucking annoying to this guy. So he starts to focus on him, and almost immediately people start to end up, you know, dead or missing in this neighborhood, including a young girl, which... This guy starts to focus on Longfellow. He does some digging and he realizes that Longfellow is the fucking fiend. And you ask what a fiend is? Don't worry. Don Dolor's going to lay out what a fiend is. A fiend is some sort of weird kind of old creature that used to drain life forces. And they go into this, this giant kind of backstory of it. Kind of really cool. Kind of fun little moment here. The thing that fiend's got going for it is that it's a regional. Regional kind of cool little horror flick. It's cheap. Um, you know, maybe it's meandering at times here and there. But I, I kind of enjoy it, to be honest. I, I don't really have have too many negatives about Fiend. I don't have that many positives. Like, for the most part, I enjoy it. It's a regional horror film with a cool monster. It's got a very fun kind of 
title and the lead actor is kind of cheesy but in the best parts um there's this really weird scene in the the old cemetery where the uh the uh, main guy drives down to figure out and like the gravedigger's like oh yeah about that stolen body because that's kind of what he catches on that these two acts of criminal acts you know they're related so he's talking to him and the guy's like yeah i have a picture of him and everything and he shows him and it's the longfellow and he's just like he was such a nice fellow i'm like you just don't take clippings of every single person that you bury, do you, you fucking weirdo? And maybe it's like a scheme he had because after he leaves, he's like, sucker. But it's just so weird. Like, and like and people come to him all the time to talk about the, the stolen body and they're just like, oh, can I have that picture? It was just a weird, bizarre scene. Very comical, very, you know, regional and just silly. Um, There's a commentary on here. Who who else is on here? I know Bruce Holchek kind of moderates the whole thing. Bruce is a great guy. He's he's done commentaries with our editor for Dr. Lamb and on Told Story and House on the Edge of the Park, all good work he's done other commentaries as well including contraband so bruce holchek sits down with actor george stover who is you know a baltimore regular he's an early john waters he's in all don dollars movies i believe a cinematographer richard giewitz and you know their memory is a little foggy you know bruce is, is helping him along but they do have some of the information they remember it and like i said fiend isn't this masterpiece or anything like that and i don't it's not top tier dollar you know, Night Beast is better. Alien Factor is better. And I would say Blood Massacre is a little bit better. Now, I do think it's better than Galaxy Invader. But hey, you know, don't fuck with The Fiend, which I believe was a t-shirt for Massacre Video. Uh, yeah, so check it out. The The picture quality is really good for like a cheaper movie. I enjoy it. And I will watch The Fiend again. You know, I, I think I would watch The Fiend again. So check it out from 1980. Okay, the next one from 1980 is a Disney movie. Disney, what the fuck's going on? The Watcher in the Woods. That's right. Starring Betty Davis and Carol Baker from all the Lindsay Baker movies. And this is directed by John Howe, who did stuff like the Inc uh, Incubus, right? And didn't he do Legend of Hull House, if I'm not mistaken? So we have The Watcher in the Woods. Now, The Watcher in the Woods is a super bizarre film. Like, I believe this was based off a book, and this movie had multiple endings, alternative openings, and I must say, me and Jeremy covered this before, the alternate endings are much better for me, at least one of them in particular much better than the ending they stuck with so the watcher in the woods i feel like is a movie i could watch four or five times and still be like i don't know exactly what's going on here so there's a new couple moving in including carol baker and david mccallum as the parents and they have two young daughters one's a little younger of course one's teenage daughter and one's really young and uh they're gonna move into this giant matter the rent is very cheap now that's a warning sign right you, you amityville whore burnt offerings why is the rent so cheap you know why the rent's so cheap you're gonna be fucking killed or haunted or turned into some monster. I don't know. That's what's going to happen. So anyways, uh, they decided to take it, but at first they must pass a test because Betty Davis lives in like the side house off to the top and it's her property. And she just is very particular who lives there. Uh, right away, she has a connection with the daughter and it seems that she lost a daughter around her age at some time in those woods and nobody really could ever explain what the hell happened. It must have been the watcher in the woods. And that explains like a lot of the POV wood stuff, which is really kind of creepy and cool and I enjoy it. So uh, pretty soon the groups of people uncover that some weird crazy accident happened where Betty Davis's daughter disappeared and they think they can you know bring her back in some weird way and you're not exactly sure how the hell this is going to work and can old story people bringing up old past traumas and everything like that some some memorable faces here and there all in all it's a it's a decent little movie it's kind of cool um i enjoy it, it has solid atmosphere kind of creepy for a, a disney movie um they do lift something directly from the shining and i don't know if this was in the book or the source material this came out the same year as shining some people list this as 81 i believe it is 80 or it was made or completed or shown somewhere in 1980 so i don't know how much time they 
they had to do that, but they do the red rum murder backwards bullshit, but they do it with Nemec when a, a dog's named Nemec, and it's just like, if it's Karen or some shit, and it's just like, this is, this is a reach. This is a real reach. She's like, they told me to name the dog Nemec, and then she writes it on there, and it's backwards, it's Karen. It's like, oh shit, it's like, that's such a bad reveal. That's a cornball reveal. All in all, though, it's a good-looking, I guess, Blu-ray. Disney doesn't do too much remastering, but I think there's a 5.1 mix on there, which the DVD had as well. So, you know, Watcher in the Woods from 1980. Uh, pretty cool that there's a Disney horror film from 1980. You can't really go wrong with it, right? When did Black Hole come out? I think Black Hole was late 70s. No, it had 78, 79, because the cash-in on Star Wars. That's not really a horror movie. It kind of is. Anyways, uh, yeah, Watcher in the Woods. Cool stuff. Uh, I would watch it. Betty Davis is always great. Gotta love Betty Davis. Carol Baker's always solid. Different seeing her in this, as like as a mom instead of like that sex pot kind of deal or you know psychologically damaged from all them Umberto Lenzi you know giallo stuff Okay, the next one from 1980 is The Beast to Die. Now, this is a Japanese, more of a crime film, but it kind of involves a serial killer, so I took notice of it, and it had a really kind of like, it seemed like a genuinely good film. So I was like, I'm going to look into this. You know, it's a little bit of a cheat. So, uh, yeah, this is a crazy movie. This is a, a drama crime, you know, thriller. It's really excellently well made. It's well shot. So we follow the story of, uh, he was a, a war photographer, and he had lost his job from that, and he kind of just, um, he's, a, he's a very damaged individual. It's like this strange character study where he starts to be kind of, he steals a gun. In the very beginning of the movie, he kills a police officer in a really grueling, rainy fight scene, takes his gun, and attacks a group of Yakuza. And kills them as well. And there's just these beautifully long, structured takes and everything. Just well done. Just really graphic and weird and unsettling. And after that, you know, he goes to, he's obsessed with music as well. So he, he's always sitting in at this music place. And he starts to get infatuated. Starts this kind of weird relationship with this girl, you know, that, um, you know, this kind of weird kind of, you know, Travis uh, Brickle character or Travis Bickle character would have with, you know, a character. It's very similar to Taxi Driver in some ways, I would say. But, um... I think you can, uh, you know, understand Travis a little bit more than this guy. Um, but he's definitely damaged from war. So what happens is he decides he's going to rob this bank. And he, he plans it all out. He sets people up just to find out how the operation works completely. But a stroke of luck, I guess, happens for him. Or uh, a bad luck, um, if you look at it in a certain way. And he meets this, this kind of um, violent young guy who is angry at the world. He's angry that, you know... He didn't get, couldn't afford to go to college and all this kind of stuff. And he's got this big hair and he's just a miserable person as well. And at first, uh, you know, they, they clash heads, but this guy starts to manipulate him to kind of help him carry out this bank robbery. And what happens is an incredibly violent, intense bank robbery and then an escape uh, involving, you know, and there's a police officer on his tail the entire time. And the way that this villain kind of just carries his demeanor. He's really the main character. He's mostly the entire focus of the movie. He carries his demeanor. He carries his focus. It's just a, a really on, on easy performance. At the very end, we kind of get a look into what the breaking point was for him. And it's really bothersome. And would this be a 1980 movie if there wasn't rape in it? So you get where it's going. The Beast to Die. It's just a, it's a really cool movie. Don't confuse it with The Beast Must Die from Amicus. The Beast to Die. Uh, and it ends in a really kind of wild, surreal way. There's a lot of beautiful shots, a lot of beautiful stuff going on in this movie. Well-made, executed uh, filmmaking for sure. The Beast to Die.
Okay, the next one from 1980 is The Stud and the Nympho. Now, this is probably, I think this is the last uh, Shaw Brothers movie I will be covering. Um, there's only eight more movies after this, this show that I'll be covering, and not including the year in 1980 movies, which I got a bunch of to edit. So, The Stud and the Nympho, Shaw Brothers movie, 1980. And now this starts off as like a vignette kind of deal, like an anthology almost, where we have all these group of women talking, and they're talking about their husbands cheating on them, and we get these elaborate kind of like stripped down through the credits of, you know, this beautiful woman being naked naked stripping and and then we kind of like see a couple of the one husband's escapades a little bit and you're like oh is this going to be a lot of silly kind of fluffy stuff in the very beginning and it is at first and, and then like after that we kind of do this entire like hour uh with this character or like 45 minutes i would say with this character who has a mistress on the side he's an older guy and cheating on his wife and he wants you know he has this weird you know thing about it. he's just he's a very like horrible person uh, to be honest like he wants the best of both and a lot of like shenanigans on it's like a sex comedy to be honest where he gets locked in the apartment but there's this side thing going on with this character who's obsessed with his wife who has a hole cut in the wall and he watches her and he has weird you know like uh, inflatable dolls with her face on it and all this kind of weird shit going on her face postered all over the wall over other you know beautiful women naked and stuff it's just like all this kind of weird shit going on and it's just like this weird kind of tonal thing in here at one point it's the kind of movie where like this, this woman's going out for a walk and she gets hit in the back of the head and somebody's going to rape her and then somebody hits that guy and then that's, that's the takes takes her back to his place and, and it gets even more complicated because we have all these relationships and all these characters trying to swindle or you know seduce other people just for their own gains it just shows you how you know kind of sleazy everybody's except the wife she's actually not that bad she's the only one that's probably not a bad person so so like you just see this and at the very end it ends in this like violent attack where a bunch of people end up getting immensely hurt or killed so it's like it's not a horror movie it's not a thriller movie until like the last 20 minutes or or so and then it turns into this wild weird movie and you know hong kong movies in general or you know a lot of chinese films do have weird tonal shifts so people should be used to that but it's like sex comedy you know drama meets uh weird spree killer at the very end um i can't give this a wholehearted recommend but i did enjoy my time with it there's plenty of sex and nudity and goofiness and you know this is going to take a special kind of person to like this kind of thing do i give it the pervert card Probably not quite. You know, if we're talking Sato's getting pervert cards, I don't think the stud and the nympho is getting a pervert card just yet. Okay, so the last one from 1980 is going to be Dessa Sandra. I think that's how you would say her name. And this is weird. This is this is a drama first. You know, it's definitely a drama, but it had like this dark edge to it, this thriller edge that when I read about it, I said, you know, I'm going to put that on the list and I possibly check that out. Is it an Italian film? Now, the actor that I recognized uh, fairly quickly was the, uh, the, the German actor from the film The Brutes from 1970. He, he's in hundreds of movies. He's a, he's a bald gentleman. You'd recognize him right away if you saw him. Now, I think one of the actresses in here went on to do a lot more things. She's kind of a popular actress, I believe. And that's the clip I'm going to use because that's the only clip I can find to use. So I feel like that's a reason it's on YouTube is that she's probably a bigger name than anyone else in the film. I don't know if that's fact or not. So what we have here is this heavyset girl, which... The first 20 minutes reminded me of the the Criterion movie Fat Girl, which is a really dark and disturbing film about this heavyset girl coming of age. You know, it's just a really disturbing thing, French film. So what happens is she's overweight and she's obsessed with eating and she witnesses her mom, you know, sleeping around a lot and uh, all those kind of things. So um, 
after her and her mother get in a fight, she attempts to commit suicide and she ends up losing a, a, a ridiculous amount of weight. Her mother told her some awful things. So she finds out that her real life mother was a prostitute and she gets this infatuation with becoming a prostitute. She also gets kind of, you know, I would say radicalized to a certain point or intrigued by these kind of terrorists or a left, uh, ultra left wing group of terrorists or something along the lines. I'm not exactly sure what group of terrorists are. are. I mean, in this time in the you know 60s to like the 80s, there was a lot of, you know, crazy terrorist groups in in Italy. Um, And I only know this just based on, you know, the years of lead box that that Arrow put out kind of kind of talking about that. That's why those Polizia Tetsis and Euro crime films are so violent and weird and different, you know, in comparison to, I guess they're very similar to American contemporaries, but other things as well. That's why maybe they embrace that kind of stuff over there. So it's kind of this idea that she's obsessed with, you know, becoming a prostitute. She gets involved with all these strange people. And the one thing I think is really cool, if you ever watch, you know, people pick up prostitutes in European movies, like in terms of like, you know, French films, like if it's Brigade of Death or any of the other ones, they always drive down this like this road with this like long road, country road with these trees and like these trash cans sitting out there. And it's like where they all the prostitutes just on point are that are always there and it's just a strange thing so it's always in all these movies like that so anyways that's kind of what happens here and she gets involved with all these different characters and it gets really grody in places with her and her mom and sharing lovers and possibly you know getting involved with each other there is a a clothed rape scene it's not meant to be a rape rape scene i mean it's still sexual assault to a certain extent um to a certain extent it is sexual assault not to a certain extent where a character you know um basically rapes her with his clothes on and ejaculates. It's a strange fucking scene. Well, there's two rape scenes in this fucking movie. Um, and there's another kind of famous actor I will mention here um, from The Big Racket. You guys remember The Sharpshooter? This guy went on to do a bunch of movies. He's a sharpshooter in a big racket. He's a very cool actor, and he's in here as as a head of the terrorist group. But uh, yeah, it's it's a coming of age story, I would say. But it's dark. It's weird. It kind of starts to jump all over the place to a certain point where you're like, now we're into this world, all this kind of stuff like this. It's sexual. Um, there's nudity and stuff. It's a weird film. Uh, again, I like it. I don't know how great it genuinely is, or context would help with this one as well. The director didn't do that many films. He didn't direct that many films, but this one was interesting enough. Uh, Desarita, Desarita, sorry about that, Desarita, it's an Italian name, of course, so check it out if if you're interested, not horror, more of exploitation, thriller, drama kind of deal. Hey guys, what's up, we're here for uh, Blindspot, this is your pick, and this is 1925 silent film directed by Todd Browning, Todd Browning would go on to do such horror classics as Freaks from, I think is that 32, and of course, Dracula, Todd Browning kind of got blacklisted after Freaks, and he didn't do as much as he should have, but he was kind of one of the kings of silent cinema, did a lot of films with Long Chaney Sr., including, what was it, The Unholy Three, a lot of stuff, Um, so yeah, The Mystic, you chose this because the lead actress in it, or the lead character in this film, has a very unique look, it's very memorable, I'm sure everybody's seen it, or it's been ripped off and other things, and we've seen it, kind of like The Shaw, and she basically... Her, her, her brother, and her father are a group of the film's words, uh, gypsies that kind of travel and do magic, and it's in the vein of that like fake super, the fake kind of magic mysticism stuff they used right. to do on stage. Um, you guys, if you watched Nightmare Alley from last year, it's similar to that, which is remake another one. It's that fake kind of uh, what would you call that? I don't remember exactly what you call it, but like, like the medium sand yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, and quite frankly, it. It's kind of like the same plot of Nightmare Alley. It's very similar. Um, yeah. So what happens is kind of this shysty guy catches the show one day and he decides, hey, I can make a lot of money off this. Befriends them. Um, kind of has a relationship here with the main girl. 
And uh, then, you know, it starts to get really complicated when they have their eyes focused on a couple rich people, one of which who just lost her father and her business, her father's business partner. So they start to get involved with that and start to con their ways by faking ghosts and all these kind of things like that. But uh, people start to have a change of heart and they start to have ulterior motives. And you don't really know where anyone stands because, hey, it's a group of shysty people that are trying to rip people off. So um, it all accumulates um to the very ending when it's kind of a bunch of people backstabbing each other mm-hmm. and there's a couple little twists and a little better ending or a little happier a little ending happier than one would want to expect. Yeah. Um, all in all, this is a good movie. You know, it is a silent film, so that does take some getting used to. Mm-hmm. I think it flowed a lot easier and was easier to watch than a lot of the silent films I had seen. Right. Um, some of which are better films in general. Like, I think that, you know, Nosferatu and Di- Cabinet of Dr. Caligari are better movies. But I don't think they're, um, I, I do think, or The Phantom Carriage, but the pacing, on the, especially The Phantom Carriage, I think is a little too long. Like the cue cards are up too long and it kind of just kills the tone for somewhat. This one I felt was very fast paced. Yeah, I think like this one is very fast paced. It's like, what, like an hour, 25 minutes? Maybe like 70, 70, 70 minutes 70 or something minutes. like yeah, that. It's, it's, it's not a very long film. Um, there is a lot of dialogue, I feel. Like like a lot of like the cue cards. Yeah. Um, but it's it, it's short or it, like like it it helps move the movie along. There's a lot of times where you're watching a silent film and you might get a dialogue card like every five minutes, you know, and you're kind of like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Like the old Hunchback we watched, or no, the old Doctor Jekyll, the first rendition of Doctor Jekyll. Jekyll. There was like five minutes of talking, and it was just like stationary camera. And I don't expect all these crazy angles and that kind of you know right. technology. But at the same time, it's like okay, this is stupid. Like this is it's kind of not moving the plot right. along fast enough. You know, Metropolis. Um, as much as I love that movie, um, you know, it it's it's a long movie, and I I just don't feel like that there's a whole lot going on like like in, in there's the too cards. much air in silent movies right um <laughs> but not real air because it's not right a, but you know what i'm saying like that that's the only that's the only dated thing i think with them right. this one doesn't seem to have as it doesn't feel as like as much like that the plot like i said we've seen the plot before because yeah. we've seen so many similar movies like this mm-hmm. but like i said it's entertaining it's iconic it's fun it, it's a little lighthearted, i would say yeah i, I said this is a bit more lighthearted one um the the main actress her her character i think is uh zara um really i wanted to watch because i saw a lot of pictures of like her different costumes in this movie and i'm like these look sweet and then i don't know maybe it's just a version version we watch but the like the one i really wanted to see wasn't in this cut i'm like Man. Maybe it was. Maybe that was just like a still they took for that stuff. The, the problem with these movies is quality is always a little iffy because right. you never know. A lot of a lot of silent films are lost. I believe mm-hmm. some of Todd Browning's films are lost. I don't know if he was supposed to do London After Midnight or not. But Lon, he, like Lon Chaney, a lot of his yeah, stuff is like lost. Lon Chaney, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Lon Chaney's not in this one. You originally thought he was. We did watch Shock. Remember Shock had Lon Chaney right. Sr. in it. Um, I don't know how to rate something like this. I'd probably just go three and a half right down the middle if there's anything I else mean, you wanted to talk about. Yeah, you know, it's it's a three-star movie um i think the costumes look really cool the 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 story again we've all seen it but that's not necessarily a bad thing it's just i think it makes it easier you're not having to follow as much twists and turns as you're going to have to do like you know in the movies 10 15 years later i i will say this though um i do like the act in a lot of genre films whether it's crime noir or horror 
it's sci-fi, whatever. Back in the day, the circus or circus acts mm-hmm. were always incorporated, and I feel like it's one thing that I truly think would be really cool to incorporate in horror films. Although circuses and carnivals, they're really not a thing as they were. I mean, they have such a <laughs> a trashy quality about them now, less and no mystique or, or mystery that they used to have. But there's just something so cool about circuses and carnivals and all that lifestyle portrayed in those movies and everything like that. And, and I miss it in a lot, like watching old films, it's there and mm-hmm. it's cool. You have the guy who throws knives, which we watched in what, um, Mad Love. There's Mad always Love. that's very that's like a gimmick too that's kind of disappeared in horror films, the knife thrower, uh, or like that kind of thing. So, like, there's a lot of stuff that we obviously see pop up in movies that pop came later but knife thrower i feel like that's in every one of these old movies well like you know carnies are inherently kind of creepy like nobody's going to deny that and and like well browning had a history with with carnival people so i mean so that's why freaks you know so so it makes sense and i i I still think that you still see you know like like the carnival themes that pop up every couple of years um I, I feel like Rob Zombie does a lot of the stuff. I feel like Rob Zombie just has characters that work at carnivals, right? And, and, and like cast in his movies is what it feels like. But like he has like the modern day ones or the ones from the seventies and eighties who are just mm-hmm. like chain smoking, like <laughs> raspy voiced, like foul mouth monsters. And like when we look back at it, like it was just a little like. They all were like, they're all carnival barkers. Like right. every character around Isaac. I like it. Some people hate it, but you know, it's just so different. Like everybody's screaming at the top of their lungs. And this one, it's just more of a sense of uh, mysticism, which yeah, is but, not. Well, there. I mean, it's, it, it is called the mystic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's fun. It's, you know, it's a Todd, Todd Brown, Todd Browning, Todd Browning. Yeah. Um, and I think. Does he have any more of the Universal stuff we have to watch? Well, he has Dracula. He has he does do Dracula. Was Dracula Dracula wasn't silent, was it? No, I didn't. But Bella Lugosi, right? Bella Lugosi. Yeah. But um, no, and, and also it's Dwight Fry that too. I think he is he the or is Dwight Fry the guy? It's been so long. Is he the guy who says they're alive in Frankenstein? I can't remember. I think I he remember. is. I, it's been a long time since oh. I watched these. But let me say, I there's probably some silent movies we'll watch by Todd Browning before we get to the big Universal stuff. Right. I, I'm sure of it. But Freaks was a Warner Brothers that was like 32, and then after that he was. You know, right? Um, can I ask a question? Yes. Um, like, so who's the better Dracula? Is it is it going to be a Bella Lugosi or Christopher Lee or somebody else? Gary Oldman was he Dracula? Mm-hmm. Why are you bringing that up? Do you think we bring this up on the Universal show? I I it's I mean I'm bringing it, it up is. because I might draw a Dracula for something. Bella Lugosi only played Dracula twice. Mm-hmm. Um. In the Universal films, in the first one, and Abbott Costello meets Frankenstein, which is crazy, right? He came right. back for that one. I don't think he ever played him again. But it's funny, though, that Bela Lugosi played Frankenstein's monster once, which is completely miscast. Interesting. Um, yeah, but Christopher Lee played Dracula seven times. Right. He was only not in two. He was not in Brides, and he was not in... Golden... The seven, seven Golden Vampires. Yeah. But he also was Dracula in other films. Like, he made old Dracula, stuff like that. And he would say, you know, he was Count Dracula and Jess Franco. So, mm-hmm. I think he's played Dracula upwards nine, ten times in, in different things. So, I mean, you have to give it to Christopher Lee. I know that's not what people, a lot of people want to hear. But then on top of that, like, it's like kind of like, who's the, you know, the Wolfman. People are always like, it's Paul Nash, he's the Wolfman. He did more Wolfman movies. But the only character to ever don the Wolfman in Universal Studios was Long Chaney Jr. So, that says something there that he did every right so, and, and so he's the ultimate in the monster because boris karloff only played frankenstein's monster three times oh you know so so I, i'm doing inktober and one of the and yeah. i drew my pencil drawings this month so i can ink them in october um 
And one of the words is bat. And I'm like, I should draw a Dracula. Should I do a Bella Lugosi? Should I do a Christopher Lee? What should I do? Well, they both have the widow's peak. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And and to be quite honest, I, I'm not that great of a drawer. So you, you won't even be able to tell if, who it is. If I were to draw one, I'd probably go Bella Lugosi. Because really? I feel like his image is more iconic. Not his performance, maybe, but his image. Well, his performance yeah. might be more iconic. It's just he didn't do it as much. He didn't do it as much. And I, I mean, I, to, to some extent, I feel like Christopher Lee might have taken from the Lugosi. But that's well, neither but here nor Here's there. the problem here, though, too. Because Christopher Lee never got to say any lines from the fucking book. That's why he did Jess right. Franco's Dracula. That's why he got to do some of them. And that's why I love Jess Franco's Dracula. But Bela Lugosi saying, Creatures of the Night, What Music to My Ears, is... Is a better line than Christopher Lee had in any of his Count Dracula's. Even though I, I think that Christopher Lee is a, a vastly more versatile. Even though right. Christopher Lee is kind of somewhat typecast, I think he's a much more versatile actor than Bela Lugosi. Personally, I know I haven't seen all Bela Lugosi's movies, but when you look at White Zombie and and Dracula and um, the um, the Gypsy guy and Wolfman, I mean mm-hmm. he he's kind of Bela Lugosi, and so is Christopher Lee to a certain extent. But I feel like Christopher Lee, his kind of stern upper lip kind of thing is more broad can be used for different things should we start focusing on the universal movie since it's almost Halloween? i think we should you know what let's let's do the next universal i wanted to give you a choice though i was gonna say starman or bay of blood but if you want we can do the next universal that'll either be phantom or hunchback let's just do that since we just started talking about these universals yeah well because it's it's that time yeah you do a universal then i'll i'll do then you do the next one yeah we'll We'll just do universals until halloween that sounds good, but I we're the fu- good. the problem is we're we're gonna be like in all the silent ones and the the th- the film the wars. We're never even gonna get to the we're never even gonna we're touch Dracula. Get, we're not oh, even gonna touch man. Dracula or Mummy or Frankenstein until fucking twenty fucking thirty seven. Why why we do this? I'm glad we're doing it because it's good. It's learning. It is good. Yes. And yes. I mean, if you don't know the history of horror, you should always like even if you're a novice at it, don't be embarrassed. You, you got to learn sometime. And, and I'm not an expert on the Universals. I haven't watched them since I was a fucking kid, mm-hmm. but I do know a decent amount about the Universal horror film just from memory alone and just listening to a lot better people talk about them so i mean it is something that you should i think that you should watch every hammer horror movie i think you should watch every universal horror movie i think you should watch every classic horror movie you can get your hands on every horror movie to be honest some of those early hammer movies were just like actual gems like like cater mass i actually think that the sci-fi stuff was right vastly underrated and and uh i do think that the best movies to put forth to summarize hammer will always be Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula, yeah. even if they're not personal favorites. But I could feel that it, the more I watch Curse of Frankenstein, it could most definitely be one of my favorites. Um, but I tend to gravitate towards like the Quatermass the movies Quatermass. and um, like um, These Are the Damned mm-hmm. and then kind of the trashy 70s shit like Vampire Circus. So a- Any of like like the the family suspense ones I think were also really fun. Well, they were good, but when you get like two or three in a row, it starts to get a little... That is the yeah. problem. Like, we watched two or three very <coughs> similar movies in a row, and and I just went through the whole entire Hammer House of Horrors for 1980, and there's a reason that was Hammer's last breath. That's all I... I it's just not comparable to their films. They killed I, it. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm going to make a joke. Like, in 1980, Alfred Hitchcock and Mario Bava took their last breath, and so did Hammer. <laughs> That's terrible. It's true. It's I true, mean, yeah, yeah. So a- anyways, next week we'll do, I can't remember if it's Phantom or Hunchback, but we're going to do both back-to-back because we're going to do a bit things. And and I, I don't know if technically one of them counts as a silent. This is the original one, Lon Chaney Sr. Phantom, 
and I think Long Chaney for Hunchback. I think they're both. You know, I did a Hunchback part of my Inktober's. Yeah, I love Hunchback. I mean, the the story's great. The book's great. Oh yeah, yeah. Phantom of the Opera book not as good as a Hunchback book. <laughs> the oh, Phantom well. the Phantom book's okay. Well, these ones are shorter. Maybe we could do both. I don't know. We we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. Right. Yeah. Well, right. we're out of here. All right. Bye. All right, let's get into these questions, comments, and concerns. Last week, I didn't ask you any questions. It's going to be very brief, I guess. So, uh, movie junkie reviews. I feel like what makes Blood and Black Lace so mean-spirited is is the motive for the murders. Good movie. Classic movie. I I wouldn't disagree with that. Nick Mool, I confess it feels a bit strange with no question this week. No homework for Mr. Parka. Also, last week, I meant to ask if you felt fear of clowns is typical U.S. thing, and how much did Stephen King contribute to that with the whole Pennywise thing? Oh, yeah. So I would say that fear of clowns is a fairly typical thing in America. I think a lot of people do not like clowns. I do not blame them. Uh, So did Stephen King contribute? Absolutely. But that was also at the time we had, you know, Pennywise, but we also had John Wayne Gacy. So Gacy, Pennywise, and we had Ronald McDonald. So it was just a bizarre kind of mixture of weird fucking clowns. And the idea that, you know, Clowns are either always smiling or always crying. You have the two, you have the sad, you have the happy. And sometimes they're doing things that don't reflect what's on their face. That's creepy in general. And anybody dressed up and treating you like close like they know you and just being weird is definitely a thing. Um, it's creepy. If Argento is making... I, I don't know if clowns are, are weirded out. Like, people get weirded out by clowns in other countries. So, I know that clowns are a thing elsewhere. If Argento is making New Jail and offered you any part, which would you pick? A clueless protagonist, the cop, the killer, one of the victims. So, um, the thing is that Argento always plays the killer when it's behind the camera. The gloves are always his hand. So, you wouldn't really get to be the killer. Um, I think, though, I would, wouldn't mind playing the killer. Maybe he's got some psychological damage. That could be a very fun role. But if you want to be there, I would prefer, here's what I would prefer in an Argento film. I would be prefer to be the the clueless protagonist, but also the killer, and have a self-realization that I was, the, in fact, the killer. That would be fun, because we always have those, right? The clueless protagonist. But then, eventually, they um, find out who the killer is, or they saw a killing. But Tenebrae kind of plays with that, right? Because the main character in the film, spoiler for Tenebrae, ends up being the killer. But he's not the only one on the case. So, uh, I, so, so I would go, want to go with something like Tenebrae, you know, that kind of deal. I thought that was a great role. I thought it was a great twist. Uh, will you be watching the new Pennywise doc? Maybe, possibly, I don't know. You know, I, I like it. I like the miniseries. I like the two movies they made. And I've read some of the book. I mean, I'm fine with it. I might watch it. Um, who is the best horror movie composer? That's such a crazy question because there's so many great composers that worked on horror films that aren't just horror movie composers. I mean, Ennio Morricone did. Riz Ortolani did. Um, and then we have guys that strictly kind of work more in the horror arena like John Carpenter or, you know, Claudio Simonetti. And there's just uh, uh, tons of people out there. Goblin, who's Claudio Simonetti. But you also got Fabio Frizzi. Or Frizzi. Frizzy. So there's just so many people. I don't know. I guess it depends what you really like. It, you could Somebody could go with a Harry Manfredini because the Friday 13th score is so memorable. But John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, say, you know, the score is, uh, nobody forgets that score. Everybody remembers John Carpenter's Halloween score. Um, but they're so different, right? Um, I, my favorite composer is, is Riz Ortolani. Because he's got the Cannibal Holocaust, he's got House on the Edge of the Park, and he always just does a beautiful, wonderful job. He does the score for Don't Torture a Duckling by Fulci. But, um, I mean, Fabio Frizzi hits hard, man. Um, Goblin is a classic, you know. Uh, But Carpenter, Carpenter's, you know, inspired hundreds and thousands of composers. So it's just, it's really a weird question. It's just preference. There's too many good ones to name. I don't know who's the best. 
I'm not technical enough with music to tell you who's the best. Randy Greetings from Belgium. Your work is stellar as per usual. Thank you. Ken Coakley, your review of Blood and Black Lace was spot on. The film was so ahead of its time, they used Eastman Color, which is my favorite coloring process. The lighting was very much pre-Argento, but Bava was more diverse when it came to subject matter as well as filming technique. My favorite of his body of work was Kidnapped. The idea of making the film time-specific was a stroke of genius. That made the film worthy of Hitchcock. If anyone watching this hasn't seen Kidnapped, I strongly recommend it. No, I have seen Kidnapped, a.k.a. Rabbit Dogs. That is a great movie. And that was, I think, the first Mario Bava movie I ever saw. You know, I saw it uh, years ago, whenever that set came out, the initial Bava set. And I love George Eastman in it. I love Eastman. Obviously, the way I dress. I'm a big Eastman fan in that movie. I think he was wearing a shirt just like this in that movie. Um, I also thought Jeremy was hilarious when you asked him if he knew who Cameron Mitchell was. Now, and his reply was, wasn't he on Baywatch? Had me crying from laughing so hard. That's great. There were two films Cameron Mitchell did that I liked a lot. First off, he was in a biker film called Rebel Rousers with Bruce Dern and Jack Nicholson. Dern and Nicholson were bikers and Mitchell played an architect who had to battle the gang. The other movie I liked a lot was Nightmare in Wax, which he played a sinister wax museum owner. That's funny that you mentioned he was an architect that had to battle a biker gang. Who else was it a famous vigilante? that had to battle, you know, or didn't have to, but he chose to, you know, go out in the streets and kill people. Charles Bronson, Death Wish. So, connection? Hmm, I'm just kidding. Uh, book, I don't know when Death Wish, the book was written. In the late 70s, he turned to television and started in a show called Swiss Family Robinson. I felt so lucky that I got to see him act every week. I do have a question, which is, do you have any favorite Mario Bava movie? Um, that's a good one. I think it would probably boil down to Black Sunday or Blood Black Lace or Bay of Blood. One of those three. But I've never seen a bad Mario Bava movie. I've never saw one from him that I was like, that sucked. He, just, I just don't think the guy's real capable of making a bad movie. So that's one thing he's got going for him. And I know my friend Horseball always says that, you know, Bava's my favorite because he doesn't make bad horror films. I mean, every great director, horror director, has a couple bad films, except, you know, Ma I don't think Mario Bava really does. You know, and Cronenberg, as far as his horror content is concerned, he never really had a turd in the horror genre where you're like, that was terrible. You know, for me at least. Maybe I missed some. Okay, so I kid, Patrick Still Lives is fun and sleazy flick. And Movie Junkie Review says, I've only ever watched the remake. It was okay. This is an unofficial sequel to the original here, Patrick Still Lives. Not a real sequel, but it's fucking hilarious that it exists. Barnabas Collins, hey, I won the movie. Sweet deal. I sent you my address and messenger. Please let me know if you got it or I need to send it in a different way. I got it, buddy. What the flick? I love Shogun Assassin. I picked that Lone Wolf and Cub set up during the last Criterion sale. Never seen any of them, and now I love them too. Thanks for another great video. No problem. Uzi six, Suicide 666. The Lone Wolf and Cub series are some of my favorite movies of all time. Watch them. Ken Coakley. I saw Shogun Assassin three times at my local cinema. The second time I went with a friend with me, and with me, he ate it up. He bought the Lone Wolf and Cub box set the day after seeing it. He also has a rare Japanese poster for one of the films, but I'm not sure which one. RB. I do have a question, Dave. What is the story behind your outro every week, where you point your elbow at the camera and make the squealing noise? I feel like I should know the reference, but I don't. Yeah, um, basically... There's a scene, I kind of exaggerated. Me and my friends used to do it because we thought it was funny. If you've ever seen um, Troma, uh, Poultry Geist, there is a scene in Poultry Geist where they do the joke about Jared. Um, you know, Jared lost all the weight from the Subway sandwiches and Michael Flyshaker, and it cuts to him, and he's just kind of, I don't even remember if he's leaned over like this, but he's leaned over the table, and he's just like, don't you even think about skipping on those soy gravy, low-carb soy gravy or some shit like that. And we always just do, mm, like that to people. We just would stop and just put our elbow, like we're resting our elbow on the table and just give him that look. And that was what a reference to, so it just turned into me doing that, making the stupid ghoulie sound that I always should do, 
and it just turned to whatever the hell it is now. So I do have a question this week. So I noticed that I've cut back on buying a lot of stuff. Oh, almost dropped that. I don't want to have to replace that. So I cut back on buying a lot of stuff, and I'm wondering if you guys done the same, and what have you cut back on buying? What was the first thing to go? For me, I used to you know try to collect everything I could. The first thing I stopped buying was the Scream Factory exclusives. I I get I'll get one or two if I absolutely have to have them, but like the price range on those and for the quality and what they are, it's just a no. Like, I, that's it. That was the first thing that went for me as a Scream Factory exclusives. The Shout Factory exclusives limited to X amount. I'm th- sorry, I'm not doing that. Hopefully some other company will release them overseas and it'll be $5 cheaper with more special features. But, all right, so that's the question of the week. And let's hop into the update, too. So while I'm here, uh, it's not that much. It's only one freaking movie, so we're not going to have a weird cut. Friday, th- We're going to have a weird cut here. Friday 13th, 4K. I can't wait to pop this in. I'm probably going to watch Friday 13th again a second time for 1980, just on 4K this time. It's a classic movie. You know, It is what it is. It's fucking Friday 13th. Everybody's seen it. Everybody should like it. I hopefully at least respect it. Well, yeah, you could. We're out of here. All right, guys. Thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one. Nee.